Tonight we are in 1 Kings chapter 10, 1 Kings 10, and we will do chapter 11 next week, and that will be it, at least for me. Tonight the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon, and uh, we will have a little bit more to say about the glory of Solomon's kingdom as well, in addition to that at the end end of that chapter. Just to review three lessons, I would uh, be thrilled if you take away from this class, not that you didn't necessarily know these before, but maybe uh, hopefully they've made a further, deeper impression with you. Number one, that's the tabernacle, the temple, and the church. All of these are pictures of heaven. And I don't mean by any means to leave out we haven't talked about Zerubbabel's temple or the temple of Herod. Certainly that temple uh, that we put here would equate in any of those cases. <clears throat> but the tabernacle, temple, and the church, all of these are pictures, I believe, for us to understand that God is showing us the way back into his presence, the way back to God, and he's using these things to show us that. All these are tied together. Notice how many times you'll see references in scripture to these in some form or fashion. Number two, there's two things that loom very large. If you're studying the New Testament, you look back into the old. There's two things that cannot be missed, and that is the exodus out of Egypt and the temple, referred to so many times, not only in the Old New Testament, but Old Testament as well. Number three, the glory of Solomon. And I wish I had a mathematical sign here that would if you could use the, the symbol that would show exceedingly, abundantly, less than. I don't know if there is a sign like that, but uh, I couldn't find one, so I, I'm going with this right here. The glory of Solomon pales in comparison to that of Christ. And the glory of the temple and the splendor of it, we've seen over and over these few weeks how, how much, how glorious that is, but it still pales in comparison to the church. Where are these words found? Notice as I read this how many allusions there are to the temple or to temple worship in some way. It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of these things in the heaven should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place year by year, with blood not his own. Else must he he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested to put away sin." By the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this cometh the judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to those that wait for salvation. Where is that found? Hebrews, isn't it? Hebrews is chock full of 
references to the Old Testament. <clears throat> In fact, I would challenge you to study Hebrews and not be forced to go back to the Old Testament over and over and over again. Hebrews 9, verse 23 and following. All right. <clears throat> First Kings chapter 10, our text for this evening. First Kings chapter 10. We will see now the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon. Verse 1, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. Notice right off the bat that she is coming because she's heard about Solomon. They didn't have the internet back then, but word travels very quickly, doesn't it? Especially if you're like Solomon and you're going to the ends of the earth to gather gold and precious jewels and things of that nature. Word gets around. She came to prove him with hard questions. Well, let me, let me also emphasize here 1 Kings 10 verse 1. She heard concerning the name of the Lord. I don't think we need to overlook that either. In light of her desire to see Solomon... And it certainly has a lot to do with the glory that she's heard of, how that actually glorifies Jehovah God. She came to Solomon, or she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him with all that was in her heart. Some have said, and it's not very... Uh, expressly known, but perhaps she was a queen of southern Arabia. Again, that's not definitely known, but if that is the case, perhaps there is a desert area that she's having to travel through. Thus, we see camels that would be very well suited for that. Uh, she, as we're going to see as well, has a lot of riches herself as well as Solomon does. But she comes with very great spices, gold and precious stones. And as we continue here in verse 3, Solomon told her, after she communed with him, told of him all of her questions in verse 3, he told her all of her questions. There was not anything hid from the king that, which he told her not. We don't know the nature of these questions. We don't know exactly what they were, even how spiritually focused they were but whatever it was she heard answers that were given to her from Solomon and again we go back to where did Solomon get this wisdom from God verse 4 when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, and the food of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord. Actually, latter part of verse 5, some of yours may say the burnt offering. The word in the original is, leads to some confusion. Uh, actually, if you think about ascent, an offering is ascending to God. This is, we have some confusion with that word, but uh, 
the American standard uh, seems to refer to this as a, an ascent, or perhaps some of your versions may even use it as a stairway up to the house of the Lord. We've talked about this in previous weeks, how the house of, or his palace was at a lower elevation of the greater Mount Zion, and he would have to go up in elevation to go up to the Temple Mount. So all of these things she's noticing. The Queen of Sheba is noticing all these things about Solomon and his, his house, his kingdom, his servants. All of these things, she's absorbing all of this. The latter part of verse 5, and she comes to the point, latter part of verse 5, what's her reaction? No more spirit. No more spirit in her. She's astonished. And verse 6 continues, she said to the king, it was true, the report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts or of your sayings, and we might uh, include that sayings of wisdom and maybe even proverbs and things of that nature. Verse 6, and of thy wisdom, Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and my eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. That's a very familiar, famous phrase that we see that's attributed to her, how she responded, how she reacted to the kingdom of Solomon. The half has not been told me. It was true that I heard of your fame, and I wasn't... I was very skeptical until I came and I saw it for myself. And when I did, her exclamation, verse 7, is, the half has not been told me. It's a very uh, exaggerated phrase to say, there's, there's nothing, it, it's indescribable what I've seen here. And remember that she herself, is a very wealthy queen. Keep that in mind. We're not talking about someone that has no means whatsoever, is very impoverished. This lady has her own, and consider the, the train of people, the caravan of people with her that it takes. Servants, they're carrying about, as I estimated in my study, about 9,000 pounds of just gold. 9,000 pounds of gold. So the caravan is huge. Her servants that go with her, a large caravan of people. She is by no means impoverished. And yet she sees Solomon and she says what? The half has not told me. That helps us to understand just how full of glory and splendor that this kingdom was. Even she noticed it. Even she was astonished. Verse 8, happier thy men, happier your servants, those that stand continually before thee and they that hear your wisdom, how they are blessed. And she continues, verse 9, blessed be the Lord thy God, Jehovah, that is. Some of your versions may use the capital L-O-R-D. That's the word Jehovah. That's the covenant Jehovah God of the Israelites. Blessed be Jehovah thy God who delighted in thee to set thee on thy throne of, on the throne of Israel because the Lord Jehovah 
loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. So she gave the king 120 talents of gold and of spices, very great store, precious stones, and there came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Now I want to pause for just a moment here and let's camp out at verse 9. Let's camp out at verse 9 just a minute. And I want you to consider as we're studying this interaction that she attributes this glory apparently to whom? God. Why would she do that? If Solomon did. I think so. Solomon did that. As great as Solomon was, we've seen that over and over again. As great as he was, he glorified God to her. He could have stepped back and said, well, look at my palace and look at all these, my campus here. I've got the the forest of Lebanon, this house. I've got the queen's house. I've got this house. And, and then look at the temple. We'll go up and look at that in just a little while. And certainly she couldn't get in there. But we'll go up as close as we can get. And you can see all these servants. And Solomon could sit back and say, well, look, look at what my hands have done. That would be a tendency, wouldn't it? That would be a temptation to do that. Look at what I've built. <clears throat> but he didn't do that. The glory, he glorified God and not himself. And I ask the question to you and I as we consider this, do we adorn the gospel as well as Solomon adorned the God of heaven at this time? Do we adorn the gospel to those that we see or those that we meet and those that we interact with as well as Solomon did so on this occasion. Gives us something to think about, doesn't it? Also in verse 9, I want you to consider for just a moment, hear the phrase at the end of the verse. She's attributing this, and she says, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Now, I don't, I want to insert this. I'm not here to present and submit to you that she is a, fully a believer in God. We don't know to what extent she believed in God or just attributed this to Jehovah thy God. But at the end of verse 9, she also apparently uses a phrase that is very familiar. We pointed this out in weeks before, verse 9. Therefore made he thee king to do justice and righteousness. If you recall, we pointed this out in the book of 2 Samuel Chapter 8, verse 15. This is attributed to David. Now, it would be more helpful to you, again, if you use either the American Standard or New American Standard to get the real, uh, get a little bit better understanding of the words that's being used here. Some of your versions may use the word equity and justice or equity and righteousness. But this is, a, this is attributed to David back in the days when he was king. It was a very important matter for a king to be full of justice and righteousness. As well, we could add to this Psalm 72, verse 2. That's the Psalm of Solomon. 
Psalm 72 verse 2, Solomon highlights these two words once again. Because he understands as a king that these are important aspects. That a king be just and that a king be righteous. And I have to wonder if David, his father, implanted that in his mind so much that he repeated this not only in the psalm, but also he, he would tell people that would visit him, such as the Queen of Sheba, this. How would she know that your kingdom is, is one of justice and righteousness? Lest Solomon had told her. Also, go down to verse 10 once again. We'll look at <clears throat> verse 10. She gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold, of spices, very great store, precious stones. There came no more abundance of spices to, uh, since that time. So what you have when you have kingdoms or kings coming together like this, there's a trade that takes place. I'll give you some things that we have here, perhaps Grapes or olives and figs that they were known for in Jerusalem in that area. They were abundantly grown there. Perhaps they didn't have those back where she was from. Maybe they traded some of that. So you have this trade that takes place and uh, she brings spices and this is one of those things that was very needful in Judah. As we Pause here just a minute to think about the Queen of Sheba and what she is doing here, getting her hard questions answered, but as she makes this proclamation about Solomon and his kingdom, I want you to recall the words in Matthew 12, verse 42, once again, where we started out early in the class talking about this many weeks ago. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they say, give us a sign. We want a sign. In other words, we would maybe believe if we saw a sign, give us a sign. And Jesus says, you, you have a sign. That is of Jonah. You also have a sign of the Ninevites. They repented when the word was preached to them. And he goes on in Matthew 12, verse 42, to say even the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and she shall condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold a what is here? A greater than Solomon is here. So the audience of Jesus is hearing that the queen of Sheba is going to in a sense judge you because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And having heard it, she attributed it to God. And Jesus is saying that you people have one that judges you. Because in many cases, the Pharisees would come from far off, even up to Galilee, Galilee to trap Jesus. And Jesus is saying, she will judge you. Because at least, at least, she was willing to come and willing to hear and attribute this to God. Therefore, she will judge you. 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus brings this up? This occasion here that we're reading tonight, Jesus himself uses that to preach to the Pharisees and the scribes and to correct them of their hypocrisy. Very interesting, isn't it? But somebody like the Queen of Sheba, Jesus even used Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, they'll rise up in judgment against you as well. People that are full of, or rather, have unbelief. Let's pause there just a moment to see if you have any, any thoughts thus far. Yes, got one over here. I'll post the outline here to catch up on that if you're interested in that, Carrie. Um, I guess the thought that comes to my mind is think of how great Solomon was physically blessed by God. Then you think about, just as we just read, someone greater than, you know, uh, Solomon is here, meaning referring to Christ. Now we think about the immense great blessings that Christ gives us, which are far superior than the things that God blessed Solomon with. When you think of Ephesians 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then the, to, to the point that you made earlier about just how that those blessings are to affect us, that's the whole second half of the book of Ephesians, which is the practical application of these great blessings that God has given us. So I guess that's just been rumbling through my head. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it does to me. Well, it definitely does, and I think that's why, that's why it's written here for us. That's why Jesus used it, and uh, it's to make us to understand and see. Uh, we, we see all the magnificent glory, and, and may we say the, the physical glory of the temple of Solomon. Yet, as we've said before, it's not merely, they're not merely doing physical things. They were obey, obeying God. They were involved in spiritual things as well. But certainly uh, a lot of physical things were uh, related to their building. All right, we uh, see verse 1 through 13. She came to prove Solomon with difficult questions, to see the glory for herself, came with a great company, and she came with gold, great spices, various gifts. And then her response, as we see to all that, the half has not been told. She blessed Jehovah God, the Israelites covenant God, Jehovah God, and she gives 120 talents of gold besides all the spices and, and other gifts. Solomon gives her then whatever she desired in return. All right, we'll continue verse uh, 11. The navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones, and the king made of the almug trees pillars, or uh, this would be, uh, in some of your versions, I think it might use the word stairs for the house of the Lord. This is that idea of the stairs going up to the house of the Lord. And for the king's house, harps and psalteries, and for the singers, and there came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. This verse 11 and 12 might seem to be thrown in here kind of awkwardly, but perhaps I would 
maybe tie this into the idea of the ascent that we talked about in verse 5 that's going up from the, his palace up to the temple. That ascent or that stairway going up, maybe the railing of that was made of these almond trees. And that's, uh, some of your versions might have a footnote that that's sandalwood or a very reddish type wood, a very, needless to say, very costly and rare type wood. So he made pillars or stair railing for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Musical instruments, harps, psalteries for the singers as well out of these. Probably a very, very desired type of wood for that. Verse 13, the king then as we summarize what we've seen here, the king Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire whatsoever she asked. Besides that, notice this, he gave her all this, but that's besides that which he gave of his royal bounty. Perhaps that was what he would normally give a, a king or a visitor of such nature. Give her all of this. So she turned and went to her own land, and she and her servants. We've got one comment here. back on verse, verses 11 and 12 real fast. I think we see here potentially the, the habit of the author, the spirit speaking through the author here at these times where different individuals in these books are shown at great heights and they, they seem to have all these blessings and they do and, and we're talking about Solomon's riches and his wisdom and people are coming to him. You get this little glimpse here where it really reads like Solomon makes a little customization to the temple. The temple has been built according to all of its specifications, maybe back in chapter 6. And you see here Solomon seems to add something to it, um, which, which wouldn't necessarily be by that. Kind of this reminder that, yes, Solomon is God's anointed. He's not the one to come, though. You always get these little reminders in Samuel and Kings. And the end of verse 12 in some ways is, is kind of chilling because we, we don't know who wrote this book. I think tradition says it might be Jeremiah or someone from that era. You have someone way in the future looking back through the Spirit saying, this was at the height of Israel's decadence. And then this phrase, we don't have those nice things anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. In his day when he's writing it, and you get this picture that something has happened we don't have this nice wood anymore when this author is writing this and you wonder what has happened. Like it is going so well and yet he's just pointing out it's not the same at the moment I'm writing this as it was back then and the chapters that are coming are going to start sending us you know, down that divergent path. So it's really interesting verses there kind of just plugged in like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Verse... Uh well, verse 14, rather. Uh, we change gears here now for verse 14 at the end of the chapter. And we will begin to see, if you haven't already heard in this class enough about Solomon's glory and splendor, you're going to hear some more. Let's hear some more about it. We've talked about that every week lately, haven't we? So are you ready for some more? Verse 14, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. 
Sit back and think about that just a minute. 666 talents of gold. Using our same measure that we used weeks ago as a standard, this would correlate to about $1.3 billion in gold. Now the weight of gold, verse 14, that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. $1.3 billion. I don't know that there's anything necessarily to make of this, but uh, I find it interesting that the number 666 is used. I don't want to make too much of that, but it's interesting nonetheless. Solomon is a very wealthy man, but you have to keep this in mind. One point, we think about $1.3 billion, and we can't even conceive of that. But you have to remember that in this day and time, Solomon's relative wealth was much stronger. In other words, all the surrounding nations and peoples, his buying power or the relative wealth is far greater than you and I just reading the, the phrase $1.3 billion or 666 talents of gold. The purchasing power and the relative wealth was far exceeding that. Now we continue. We're going to see more of his splendor again besides that which the traders brought. Now he's got all that that came in once a year. And besides that, verse 15, the traders brought and the traffic of the merchants brought. All the kings of the mingled people brought. The governors of the countries that doing trade and whatnot. The king Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went to one shield. Verse 17, he made 300 shields of, uh, these are smaller shields, of beaten gold. 300 pounds of gold went to one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. We've talked about the campus a little bit. The, the palace, Solomon's palace the forest of Lebanon, Pharaoh's daughter's house, and so forth. And it appears that maybe perhaps this forest of Lebanon is a place where visitors can go. And Solomon is turning it somewhat into a museum of sorts. He's turning it into uh, what appears to me to be uh, kind of a museum to show off what he has and what the kingdom is, what the kingdom is like. Verse 18, moreover the king made a great throne of ivory, overlaid it with the finest gold. There were six steps to the throne. The top of the throne was round about. There were stays on either side of the place of the seat. Two lines and standing beside the stays, you have a, a throne of ivory, very precious. Then these lions, apparently six on each side. Verse 12, the 12 lions stood there on the one side and on the other side up upon the six steps, and there was not the like made in any kingdom. Perhaps Solomon said, build me a throne, make me a throne, and I want to make it like no one else has ever seen before. I want to make it like better and more costly than any throne you've ever seen. Verse 21, all, the ki all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. 
Now, do you, let's imagine someone like the Queen of Sheba comes to visit, and perhaps she's allowed to go into the forest of Lebanon. That This is a house, a building, and it has all of these things on display. And there she has all of these vessels of gold that her and her servants can drink from. This is very impressive to a visitor, isn't it? All of this extravagance, I will call it. Verse 21, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest were of pure gold. And what about silver? Did we have any use for silver in Solomon's kingdom? Would you go home tonight and just toss out your silver, your, if you've got any pure silver in your house? Have you ever known anybody that would do that? Has silver ever lost its value enough where you would toss it out in the garbage? It was just practically useless. And we see the value of the richness of the kingdom. We wouldn't dare do that. We've never known of anybody that would do that. Last part of verse 21, none of the vessels were of silver. It was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. The king had at sea a navy of Tarshish, this is not to be confused with the navy that we saw previously last week, that uh, navy that was at uh, Ezion Geber. And this is not to be confused with that navy, but this is the navy of Tarshish with the navy of, uh, verse 22, with the navy of Hiram. Once every three years they came with the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. You see, we're getting pretty far out there where a man and his wealth perhaps is saying, hmm, what could I ask for and request that they bring me that the people of Israel have never seen before or never seen the likes of the numbers that were brought in, even apes and peacocks. You see, Solomon had all that he desired, didn't he? And he, he becomes a somewhat of a test case for you and I. What if we were to imagine what could we do with all of that wealth? Well, Ecclesiastes 2 has something to say about that. If you will, turn in your Bible with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <coughs> Solomon, in his wisdom at this point, is still able to write. We don't know at what point in his life this was written. But it fits very well with this chapter. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4, he says, I made me great works, building me houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and all kinds of trees, all kinds of fruit, pools of water, and so forth. Let's go on down to verse Eight, I gathered me also silver and gold and the treasures of the kings and the provinces. I had men singers, women singers, delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all sorts. So I was great. I was increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever my eyes desired, that really summarizes what we read in 1 Kings, doesn't it? Well, we just finished reading 
really is summarized right here. He says, whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced because of all my labor. This was my portion from all my labor. Then I looked at it and reflected upon it. As he continues in verse 11, he says, in wisdom, what does he say about all of that? All is vanity, isn't it? We wonder why we read and study about a kingdom like Solomon. Yet one more reason is we can see a man that had all he ever wanted. We can see a man that was, as it were, a test case for anyone that would desire to have all that they could ever want and see the results of that through the eyes of God or the man that's full of wisdom and he looks at all of it. A man has everything he could ever desire. Nothing is withheld from him. And we see that it's all vanity and a striving after wind. Yet another reason we read about Solomon. So we continue back in our text, 1 Kings chapter 9, or 10, verse 23. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. This is setting back and putting everything into perspective everything in the perspective of the known world at that time. And Solomon exceeded all the kingdoms of the earth in riches and wisdom. All the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Then they brought their, every man his tribute, vessels of silver, vessels of gold, raiment, armor, spices, horses, mules, a rate year by year. You see, this is exactly what the queen of Sheba has done. She's brought these things, they've exchanged. She's seen the glory. She was just an example, a specific example of what we see here in these verses of kings coming to see the glory of Solomon. Now let me pause here for just a minute and let us consider a question. As we reflect on this, we might say, well, I've never had opportunities like Solomon. I've never had opportunities to speak before kings. But do we glorify God with the platform that God has given each and every one of us to others? Let me ask that again. Do we glorify God with the platform that we have each been given? Earlier in the chapter, we saw that Solomon did that. He glorified God. He attributed all this to God. That's why the Queen of Sheba did as well. But do we glorify God with the platform that God gives us? However insignificant it may seem to us to be. We don't have to have the riches of Solomon. We don't have to have his power. We don't have to have his gold to be an influence nonetheless. Now as we continue with the last paragraph, verse 26. <clears throat> Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. I want you to think about this as we read the last paragraph. 
horses. Think about that word, horses. Verse 26, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen and had a thousand and four hundred chariots. Twelve thousand horsemen he bestowed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 9 verse 2 would indicate uh, there's four thousand stalls, I believe. A little different reading here, but perhaps a little addition to what we see here. 4,000 stalls for horses. The king made silver. You know, we talked about silver just a moment ago. Now that's coming back up, and I think for a reason. Verse 27, the king made silver in Jerusalem to be as stalls, as rocks in the street. Can you imagine? Just take take pure silver, and it's as common as common in that day as rocks in the street. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the lowland for abundance. And the horses which Solomon had were brought out of Egypt, and the king's merchants received them in droves, each drove at a price. And a chariot came up and went up out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, and a horse for 150, and so for all the kings of the Hittites. And for the kings of Syria, did they bring them out by their means, by their hands? So there's trade going on here. Solomon is going to Egypt to get these, the best horses, and he's buying them with what means? What, what is he using? A dollar bill? Silver, he's using silver. Now, how plentiful is silver? We've already said that. How plentiful is it? So how easy is it to go to Egypt and buy all the best horses that you desire? And actually, it seems here in this case that he's, if you would imagine a map of this area, Egypt is down in the lower left-hand side, and to get these horses up here in the area of Syria and the Hittites, you have to go through Judah. Isn't that just great? We've got to, not only can we go get those horses, and we can buy them with practically nothing. We bring them up through our land, and we sell them to the Syrians and Hittites, and we become richer and richer and richer. But what about this in addition to all that? We stated Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17. What are we warned about in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17? Not to, have, not to let the king go to Egypt to do. Multiply horses. For one big reason, God didn't want them to rest and rely upon the power of their military might, having all these horses, you, one would tend to rely on military might through that. But yet another reason is Deuteronomy 17, 16, 17 says, don't go down to Egypt to multiply horses. Not only not multiply horses, but don't go, don't multiply gold and multiply wives, which we'll see next week, but don't multiply horses either in that effort. Anything else very quickly as we close here? 
All right. Thank you for the class.